I just had to put that in there as a suggestion for this episode title. I see. Now, if that doesn't become the uh, title of this episode, then I'm going to have to try a little harder next time. <laughs> you saw that Hodinki article about the, the styles, street styles of... Uh, so this is the people... This is not the things necessarily that were being presented at Baselworld, is it? The people there. It's like people watching. Exactly. No, notable people. It's, it was kind of a fashion piece that's so talking right. about, you know, the... The, the overall fashion style mm. and you know I, it can't be a coincidence that i don't know what it was must be like six out of ten were wearing rolex gmt's oh really i mean <laughs> it, it just you know you got your pepsis if there's somebody had the the black and the blue one and mm. somebody had the you remember they did one which was uh, a nice kind of gold and brown mm. like the 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 bezel is one half gold and one half brown i think they call that the root beer is that right okay yeah They've all got different names. Black and blue is Batman. Right. Blue and red is Pepsi. Yeah. And yeah, I can see this one here, the, the sort of goldy, browny looking one. Yeah. That's the root beer, I think. Somebody has the Explorer 2 there as well, right. which is the with the one with the bezel that doesn't rotate. Mm. Did you see the um, the John Mayer interview? Uh, I haven't watched it. Oh, come on. It's only like one sentence. I can tell you what it is. <laughs> yeah, you might well. as well tell me, yeah. He said that of, of all the... I mean, he's a great speaker when it comes to watches. Mm. Um, well, he's a great speaker when it comes to everything. But when he talks about the Rolex GMT, he says that of all of the complications, mm. it's like the most – how did he put it? Like as an application, it's the most elegant and the most ingenious solution mm. uh, is the GMT complication. And the way the, – the, the word that really got me is he, he describes it and he, said, mm. he says, I mean, look at it. It's kind of like it's, it's world-ready. <laughs> it, it's like let's go mm. and that's when i think oh that's so right it's so right it's like it's world ready i love that i love the idea that a watch is like ready for the world it's like let's go traveling you know oh good yeah no i did read the article and i looked at all the pictures of the watches but i haven't watched the video there were a lot it was mostly rolexes right this time around yeah that's right i think he's a big patek fan as well right, i think right. but this time it was uh, mostly rolexes and yeah yeah, I don't know. It's. I think I'm at the state that um, our previous esteemed colleague was with the Submariner, where he's kind of purchased all of these sort of imitation mm. Rolex subs, mm. and getting to the point where it's like, well, if I've come this far, I may as well just go and you know get the real thing. Right. And I have a feeling that with me, probably what will happen is that I'll probably my next watch will probably be some kind of GMT. Mm. And I think probably eventually it'll be just kind of like, ah, oh, look, I just have to do it. Uh, you know, I just gotta, I just gotta have the the, the GMT Master Two. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it'll no doubt be uh, secondhand because there's no way I'd ever be right. able to justify or afford uh, a new one. But uh, they're still pretty pricey secondhand. Yeah. The thing with the GMT Master Two is that they went for a long period not making them in steel, at least. Mm. And so, right. if you're getting it new, it's expensive because it's new. But there's not many of the new batch, because I've only been making them for the last two or three years. So there's not many of the new batch that you can buy secondhand. Uh, okay. So if you're getting it secondhand, that usually means you're getting a vintage watch, uh. which is usually uh, you get a good price. Like the Amiga that I got was very cheap and was from the 50s. But because it's the GMT Master II and it's got the heritage and it's uh, relatively limited, mm. even a sort of secondhand vintage one is pretty expensive. Sure. I've been thinking recently about whether the appeal is the appearance mm -hmm. or the appeal is the solution. Mm. And 
if the appearance, if the appeal is the solution, then the explorer is another good option, right? Because it is it is equally as ingenious as the the GMT master. Of course, the because of the you don't rotate the bezel, which mm-hmm. means you can only track one time zone, mm. and obviously there's no sort of immediate at a glance indicator of day and night like there is on the. So GMT why master. why is it as ingenious? I mean, to me, the two things that are ingenious about the GMT master too, uh, or the GMT master, are. Uh, that you rotate the bezel. It's a very simple mechanism for changing the, the GMT time and that it's got the immediate indication of day and night. So those being the two things that the Explorer doesn't have, <laughs> mm. what is what is the ingenuity left? I mean, it has another hand that goes at half the speed, obviously. Yeah, that's it. Okay, that, but that they all me. got yeah. they all have that, right? I mean, basically all GMTs work that way now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that the obviously the, the GMT master, mm. I mean... Just yeah, like as you said, let's let's just tally up the genius. I mean, you've you've got two time zones additional to your home time. Mm. That that that's amazing, <laughs> <laughs> and and also that kind of convenience of like the at a glance, just sort of you know to have a quick look. Oh, it's night time. I shouldn't call now. Right. You know, right. together with you know just the the regular function of the uh, of the regular you know twelve hour mm. uh, watch. Just yeah, I don't know. I, it's getting bad. <laughs> it's getting bad, Danny. Uh, well, I keep looking at the Amiga that I didn't buy when I first moved here. That was limited edition, so you can't right. buy it now. So you can only get it secondhand. And right. every now and then it pops up. And again, I'm sorely tempted. Actually, the other thing that is a bit of a dangerous rabbit hole that I've been looking at a little bit recently. I don't, <laughs> I don't suppose this will this will be too much of a danger to you, but uh, antique books. Ah antiquarian bookstores and uh sellers on on the ebay as well as the real life ones right when when we were in las vegas a few weeks ago uh we went into this antiquarian bookstore there i forget the name but i'll put a link in the in the show notes mm. and and it's just amazing all these you know books that are hundreds of years old thousands of years old uh not thousands hundreds mostly hundreds mm. <laughs> uh, and they're still in pretty good condition it's just really interesting to to see all that obviously with my interest in um the classics and latin and greek i've been looking a lot on mostly on ebay because i haven't seen this so much in in real life mm. it used to be popular but it's less so now to produce books that were originally written in greek in a bilingual edition with Greek on the one side right. and a Latin translation on the other side. Right. It's very common now to get Greek on the one side and English on the other side, for example, or whatever your native language is. Mm. But at the time, the assumption was that most people reading Greek already spoke Latin and probably spoke it better than their Greek. So it was convenient to have the Latin translation. And obviously they could also, since people throughout Europe spoke Latin, a publisher in London or in Paris or wherever could produce a book like this with the Greek and the Latin. And the the Latin would be enough that most people who could afford to buy books also could probably read Latin. Mm. And there's some very pretty books. There's one, there's one on eBay at the moment, which is from 1653. Wow. So it's older than this country that I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) And it's published in Paris and is, the Enchiridion, which is like a handbook mm. uh, of uh, kind of stoic philosophy and guidance. Right, I see. And it, it's 
it'd be good for me because it's the way that it's presented is like a lot of small sort of phrases like here's a piece of advice here's another piece of advice sort of it's not the uh it's derived off this other uh work called the discourses of epictetus um right but that one is more like a work of philosophy that is trying to persuade and goes into detail on like this is why you know i've arrived at these beliefs and these are the pros and these are the cons and so forth whereas this one is really just like the distilled version of here is the advice that this guy came up with so wait a moment these these are the actual books right what do you mean by the actual books i mean they're not reproductions or anything like this is the actual actual piece from from the 17th century it is no it is a, in a sense of reproduction it's it's a 17th century printing of a book that was written in ad 100 ish right but the book itself so is a much older book the, the actual artifact comes from the 17th century yes oh, i see but how how could you like this is yeah i don't know see when when you're talking about something that has been like for example a vintage instrument or a vintage watch mm-hmm. maybe even like a vintage car like in this kind of situation there's a certain base level of durability there mm-hmm. which means that you can get some kind of function out of what it is right whereas when you're talking about a manuscript from the 17th century mm. like if you if if that just arrived one day in a box mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean i mean like every time it's kind of like an lp record every time that you use it and you turn those pages it's deteriorating just a little bit right i mean i've sent you a link it's in pretty good condition i don't think it would be the sort of thing i'd want to throw in my bag and carry around to read on the bus <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it's in good condition. I think, yes, with these antique books, you would you'd have to treat them carefully. Can you see it there? Yeah, I'm just having a look at these photos. Look at the binding. Look at the. It's got this Moroccan binding. It's real leather, mm. and it's got the, all that patterning. I don't know if that. It, it looks like sort of like a gold pattern, but I think they've just dug into the leather and it and, and it's that color underneath or something oh i love this um this classical page layout mm. where, you, where you have the because the 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 ratios of the widths of the margins is very specific mm. because you have obviously that the wider margin on the 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 left and the right side next to the spine where your fingers would be right yeah the, the outer side yeah and then the the amount of space at the top above the paragraphs and then below Mm. is uh, is very specific too. Yeah, it's interesting to look at these old books and to look at the way typesetting has changed. I mean, this one actually has quite wide margins. Mm. A lot of them don't because paper was expensive. Uh, so they try and make the margins very small so they can fit more mm. on and use less paper. Also, the if you zoom into some of the pages with uh, with the bilingual Latin and Greek, some of the ligatures, especially for the Greek, are particularly beautiful. I know you can't read Greek, but it's just a, a a very beautiful thing to look at. I think. Yeah, I don't know. I would. This is the kind of thing that I like. This much money for? <laughs> I mean, actually, I mean, for what it is. For what it is, it's uh, you know for a book from the 17th century. I guess you know that's kind of what you would expect. However, I would be really, really worried about. It. It's like, yeah, you'd want to be wearing your. You know, your white, white gloves, gloves. <laughs> or handling it with the uh, the mylar tongs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's definitely a well. It's a world yeah. that you find. You know, once you start looking at these things, similar to watches, like from the outside, 
you don't really know what's out there and you don't know about the ranges of things and you see these sorts of prices and they seem outrageous mm. they kind of are sometimes but once you get in there you begin to get a bit of an appreciation and you see you know you see different uh collectors valuing different things right right i have not yet taken the dive on any of these very expensive 400 year old <laughs> antiquarian books i have picked up a couple of books from the early 20th century which were much more reasonable at about 20 dollars or so mm. uh, and they're also nice to have they're interesting because they're there'll be things like you know a book that somebody had at school when they were studying for example in like 1905 or 1910 mm. and they've got some notes written in the margins of like you know in pencil looking up words or their thoughts while they were studying it and then you look at sort of how old they are and 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 the year that it was in and you think just a couple of years after they were writing these notes in the margins, this person went off to fight in World War One. Right. Yeah. And it's just an amazing thing to think about. Do you have Do you have any um, relatives who are uh, have the wonderful achievement of being of extremely advanced age? Uh, my, my two grandmothers are still alive and are, are getting on. <laughs> mm. My grandfathers have both passed away. Right. My father's father's older brother's wife right i'm gonna to have to draw a chart is <laughs> is uh, so basically my grandfather's older brother's wife okay is uh turning 100 this year oh wow that is that is more advanced than my grandmother's yeah <laughs> so when when you consider that she was born in 1919 like mm. that's that's pretty amazing, isn't it, really? Does the Queen write a letter to Australians who reach 100? I don't know. Because she does in the UK. If you if you turn 100 in the UK, she writes you a letter. Right. But, I mean, she's your Queen too, so yeah. I don't see why she wouldn't. Well, that's um, the... Yes, the... Uh, uh, I see what you did there, Danny. <laughs> the position of the, uh, position of the empire in modern society is very fascinating. And also in Japan... Mm. Uh, <laughs> Also in Japan, recently there has been a, an event which we uh, talked about on last episode. Yes, we've got follow-up. We've got Imperial Era follow-up. That's right. Okay, so they, it, we, we talked in a previous episode about the, the changeover of the Japanese Imperial Era, just to refresh the memories of anybody who, who was listening and has forgotten or hasn't heard that episode. Japan uses a, a different calendar system to the West, in that its years begin at the beginning of the current reign uh, of the reign of the current emperor. So uh, the previous era or the current era rather is Heisei, which started in 1989 when the current emperor of Japan took the throne and will end at the end of April, at the end of this month. Mm. And unusually he is abdicating Usually the reign ends when the emperor dies and then they announce the name of the new era and they crown the new emperor, you know, after that. But this time the emperor has decided to abdicate. It's the first time this has happened in Japan in 200 years. And that means that they were able to decide upon and announce the name of the new era early. Mm. And they announced it on April the 1st. Right. 
you had some guesses as to what they were going to be. If I remember correctly, you thought the uh, you you were thinking ante, weren't you? Or something with un in it. Something with un, un in it. Yeah, which was a common guess. Right. Uh, turned out to be incorrect. I think it totally took, wrong. Took many of us by surprise. I also followed quite a lot of the guesses that were going on. Uh, they did say that if it leaked, they would choose a different name. Oh, that's uh... right. They they would not. They were very serious about it not getting out. And they said, if it right. leaks, we'll change it. So I wonder. I wonder how many people knew before they. Uh, well, this was like a select group of like five or six people. Yeah, uh, I think that there was a thing on TV showing the the people who were involved in the decision, which is. Mm. potentially a smaller group than the the group of people who actually knew about the the what was decided uh but there were, i think there was something like seven or maybe eight uh people who were involved in the actual decision itself right so we shouldn't go too much further without actually saying what it is in case some people don't know yeah so you can do the honors danny with your excellent pronunciation <laughs> well there's actually an interesting thing to say about that as well but the uh so the, the new era that has been decided upon, it's Lewa, which is uh, the two characters. What did you think about those characters when they were announced? Okay, so the first thing that I did when um, we found out the, the those characters was uh, go and chat with my wife, mm-hmm. obviously, who, who is Japanese. Mm-hmm. And our verdict is, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> did you watch it did you watch the live announcement or see the explanation of it or whatever no no i didn't so just to um uh yeah well actually i'll let you explain the characters before i tell you about why my wife and i were not really impressed okay well i'll also give a little bit of what my first impression is, was and what my wife's response was we were watching it live we had the live feed of their announcement uh going as we were eating supper <laughs> mm. and the first thing that I thought when I saw it uh, was the, the most obvious meanings for those characters, to me at least, were for the first character, it looks like command or order. Yeah. Uh, like it's the second character in the word mere, which means a command. Uh, and the second character is wa, which is uh, technically means harmony, but it's also often used for Japan itself, the country, mm. or things that are Japanese. So so the first sort of impression that I got when I was looking at it was, hmm, commanding harmony or harmony through order or some of these meanings, which all are somewhat 1984 sounding. Yeah. And uh, also the current prime minister, we won't get too deep into the uh, political situation in Japan, but suffice it to say he leans a little bit fascist. <laughs> 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 so it seemed like you know coming from him, it didn't actually come from him he wasn't the arbiter of of what gets chosen but obviously you know he was involved so you know i i was a little bit shocked and taken aback now the explanation that they gave and the people who actually chose it uh, was a little bit different because the the character also has another meaning particularly a, a more archaic meaning, uh, which is auspicious or mm. or honourable or that sort of thing. Right. Uh, some words, I forget the pronunciation, but there's a word that uses this character uh, to talk about your your brother or your sister, to say like my honourable brother, my honourable sister. Mm. And the, the 
characters themselves were taken from a Japanese poem. Right. Uh, interesting fact that I only learned when all this was coming out is that most of these era names are taken from poetry, but until now they've always been taken from Chinese poetry. Right. And this is the first time that it's been taken from a Japanese poem. So that's another sort of slight hint at potentially a, a little bit of kind of nationalist influence. Right. And having thought all that and having had it explained and uh, and actually my wife who was watching this, she quite liked it. She listened to that explanation and and thought, oh, that's, you know, that's actually quite nice. And she was just happy it didn't have the, you know, the ah from Abbe in it anyway, because a lot of people thought it was going to. <laughs> right. um, and uh, so, you know, so we were all like quite positive. And then Abbe comes on and he's like, oh, yeah, it represents the spiritual unity of the Japanese people. Oh, Abbe. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. So that's, that's, um that's kind of, kind of our issue with this. Not that our opinion means you know, it means as basically as much as a small patch of wet moss in the grand scheme of uh, uh-huh. of this. And nothing. But <laughs> the thing is, okay, there are a few things. Before I go into our views on it, I also want to mention that there I saw <laughs> apparently, apparently uh, Japan uh, very, very proudly announced that it would be informing other countries around the world of the new uh, the new era's title by fax. Mm-hmm. Which I was, it's the Japanese way. Uh, so Japan and the the love of the fax machine. So uh, <laughs> that's a topic for another time. But anyway, I think we've already talked about it several times before. But I expect so. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, yeah. So to begin with, okay. So previously, up until now, the tradition has been that these titles come f- are sourced from Chinese literature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is not. Is from Japanese literature. All mm-hmm. right. You know. I mean, when you look at the history of the country, mm-hmm. there is a, a certain kind of now the modern history of the country. There's a certain mm-hmm. uh, sort of cautiousness uh, associated with nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, just because of the the you know the, the very very uh, um, horrific past and the pathway that it left it led japan to mm-hmm. you know prior to world war 2 however you know i mean i guess it it has to be acknowledged and it should be acknowledged to a certain extent mm-hmm. that you know japan has its own very rich heritage and rich uh, traditions and culture and mm-hmm. literature and for it to, for this to be sourced from japanese literature i think yeah you know that's nice it is a little different direction in tradition, and mm-hmm. I don't think it should be read too much into, mm-hmm. but I didn't think either way about that. Mm-hmm. The part that really sort of for my wife and I that we really thought, yeah, that's that's not so great, mm. was just that, yes, when you hear the explanation mm. that in, in more archaic, older meanings, mm. it comes to mean sort of auspicious harmony. Mm-hmm. When you hear those explanations, yes, it's very nice. Mm. However... The when you glance at this, these two characters, with uh, a framework and a context of an understanding of modern Japanese language, mm-hmm. you are going to have the first reaction that you did, mm-hmm. which is meidei, which is to command, mm-hmm. and then what? Yeah, okay, maybe sort of um, harmony, mm-hmm. but yes, also Japan. Right, and so you, you can to glance at it, it could mean like a, a forceful harmony, mm-hmm. or like a, a, a commanded kind of um, uh, demanded forced harmony mm-hmm. or it could mean commanding Japan mm-hmm. or it could be, you know, all of these sort of really 
rather ambiguous and, and not terribly pretty <laughs> right. meanings kind right. of come up when you when you take it in the context of modern Japanese language. Right. And of course that because it is sourced from Japanese literature and in its original form, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, in its original uh, set of meanings, it has a very nice, I, the, the concept is very nice, the uh, auspicious mm-hmm. harmony. And the meaning uh, that it was actually used in the, in the poem as well was for right. like, the first months of spring and the, the movement from winter into spring and right. all of that. Right. But it's impossible in modern day language the only time that, for example, young people would see and understand the character uh, dei mm. would be from mei dei, mm. because in common Japanese vernacular, that's the only that's one of the main times that this character comes up. Mm. It's going to mean that the sort of at a glance immediate reaction to it mm. is not going to be connected with its original intention. Well, sorry, n- maybe not, but I mean, it's obviously people will be educated. To a certain extent, that yes, this is what it actually means mm-hmm. in classical literature. But I think the thing that my wife and I didn't sort of like so much about it was those overtones of yeah, that kind of uh, militaristic, nationalistic side mm-hmm. are likely to come up when you are looking at these two characters without the framework of knowing you know the the literature that they are based on. It's interesting because I that that was how I felt when I first looked at it. And a lot of people on the Twitters uh, said similar things. Most of the people that I saw saying that sort of thing were foreign, were not Japanese. Mm. And I was sort of interested. So one thing I did just out of interest was I posted on Hello Talk. And I said, oh, this is the new character. And these are some of the things I thought. What did you all think? And it was interesting because it was about half and half of the people who responded. About half of them said, oh, I thought the same thing as you. Like, I thought of Mayday as the first thing. And others were like, no, I didn't think of that at all. Mm. Uh, the other place that this character does appear sometimes is in people's names. Right. Uh, I think Leiko is a very common girl's name. Um, I imagine it's about to become a lot more common. Mm. <laughs> yes for girls born this year um that's right <laughs> there might be a few but you know in that sense you know the, i don't think anybody takes I, I i think it is a common spelling of the name lake i'm not sure about this i haven't looked it up but i think it is a reasonably common spelling of the name to have this character followed by core the character for child which is a very common mm. uh, last character for for girls names i don't think anybody takes that to mean commanding a child i think everyone takes mm. it to be auspicious child right that's right just in the in the context of a girl's name it's assumed it has that that sort of slightly more what is the word well that that more archaic and that prettier meaning the thing is is that if you imagine that there's a committee that's deciding this and there let's say that there are like six options and they're discussing okay which one of these six mm. options w- w- shall we go with after the fact actually the other options did get leaked i think oh did they all oh, right so when you consider that there there were other options and this one was selected mm. it sort of i don't know i think that the 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 disappointing side i, I, I don't know it's not really i mean our opinions really mean nothing in this but i guess the the aspect that is a little bit kind of uh forces contemplation <laughs> is is just the idea that there were other options on the table and this one was selected despite mm. this potential of this ambiguity in the meaning right that with classical japanese literature as a background yes it's very nice however 
there is this hypertension. It can't. It cannot have not been raised at that table. Right. That wait a moment. Wait yeah, a moment, guys. It's difficult we, to believe this never occurred to them, and it's it's very likely that this was seen as a positive. That all of these right. things, the yeah. the fact that it's Japanese rather than Chinese, the fact that it is hinting at the idea of harmony through social order and through strong command and right. all these things. It is it is very likely that certainly for some of the people who were there, not only is that not a thing that put them off, but it actively they'd be all for that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it it you know, it is what it is and I think it's um it's a wonderful It is interesting. It will it will last a lot longer than the current government and the current sort of trend towards mm. nationalism. Well, we hope. We don't know how long the current trend towards nationalism will last, but right. uh it will it will be the name of the era probably for the next thirty years at least. Right. And be associated with it but at the same time you know in a sense it doesn't really matter and all of these era names can be taken to have a lot of meanings i saw one funny tweet somebody made about the heisei era Mm. which is the one that is about to end and the characters were chosen with the intended meaning of achieving peace Mm. but somebody pointed out another way you could interpret those characters is flat growth which is a very accurate a description of Japan from the period from 1989 right. to 2019. Right, so, right. You know, you can. I will say one more thing about these characters. For all that they're, you know, you may have concerns about their meaning and the political direction Japan is heading in, and, and various other things. They look cool. Like I think, just from a visual impact point of view, I actually really like the the look of them. Hmm. You're obviously not impressed at all. No, no. I mean, they, yeah, maybe. I, I, I look at it and I think of um, with the, uh, what do you call it, the, the two water things on the side, like Reizoko or Reitoko. <laughs> or it's like, you know, that's all I see. <laughs> I, can't, I can't not see that the two... It hasn't got the ice bit. Yeah, well, I think it looks cool. I think the, the, the other people said they didn't like the balance, but I think the balance looks really sort of striking they're also very easy to write so a lot of the foreigners that i follow on twitter that live in japan are like ah oh, this is going to be so much easier to fill in my bank statements and so forth now <laughs> you can you can just add two lines on the side and you get cool japan true what <laughs> that but that's a very heisei thing to say <laughs> cool japan is a very heisei effort i feel <laughs> that's right that's right yeah. Within 12 hours of the new era name being announced, uh, the pop band Golden Bomber released a new track <laughs> called Neiwa right. right. with a music video and and everything. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'm amazed by how quickly I, I imagine they wrote most of the they wrote the music and they probably recorded most of it and just left a spot for them to sing the name of the new era so they could sing that at the end and then put it out but they got it out within 12 hours of the announcement that's uh, remarkably efficient that's probably that's some enterprising enterprising young people uh, in that band that's for sure yeah. <laughs> definitely take advantage of this marketing yeah, opportunity that's right. let's capitalize on this <laughs> yeah cool japan i think we should just call it cool japan really i mean it is a heisei concept for sure but you know right i mean if you imagine like that you know the the era colon neiwa the colon kind of connects with the day, and then you've got uh, 
you got cool Japan. So yeah, also be work. pronounced the same. The 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 cool right. character is pronounced the same as as the day character. So yeah, I think you might be onto something. You should just sneak into all the government offices at night and just with your pen add a couple of two little dabs. little dots <laughs> two strokes. to the left yeah. of the. <laughs> Wait a moment, guys. That's not what we expect. <laughs> yeah. Cool Japan is a is a funny thing, isn't it? Like it's, uh, I think the idea of Cool Japan is indicative of how little Japan understands about what is cool about itself right. for people who are not Japanese. <laughs> also, <laughs> the, how little the sort of the disconnect between the kind of government official type bureaucrat type people who are right. deciding that they're going to make Cool Japan like official policy, <laughs> and the people who are actually cool in Japan, right very different group of people (laughs) cool japan for anybody who hasn't heard of it is a uh, is a movement that was started when i guess it was was it started in the 90s or in the 2000s more of a 2000s thing isn't it 2000s yeah yeah, and they were like they had noticed that people around the world think like anime and games and stuff are cool and they wanted to promote this cool image for japan and so kuru japan became like a a phrase that was used in a, a, a way of sort of trying to push new efforts by like local government officers and, and right. things that are not cool at all yeah to try and be cool yeah, i think it was a hot on the tails of the cool biz thing that was a different that, but that's a different use of the word cool entirely right yeah of course uh, it's, <laughs> it's different but i think i think they were kind of thinking that while we're going around saying the word cool let's uh, <laughs> let's add a new one to the to the collection we haven't ever talked about cool biz before, but I think we should raise it mm. while we're on this uh, deep talk about Japan. Sure. Because I, uh, I am a victim of the Japanese corporate fetish with the suit. Mm. I'm a victim in the sense that for eight years I had to wear one. <laughs> so you count that as eight Japanese summers uh. wearing a full suit with a tie. So... So the people, uh, um, I'm sure it's fairly well known, but uh, Japanese business people love the suit, like the Western dress suit. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that in when you're in Japan, like the, the Western dress suit for the businessman or the salaryman, salaryman as they call it, mm-hmm. it loses all of its elegance as a garment. <laughs> you know, like it's just so default, and you see so much of it mm. that there there is no. Like it just there, there is no elegance, there is no dignity, there is no sort of beauty to that that kind of clothing design anymore. But it also depends on the suit, right? Because most people wear the Saturday man wearing them are usually wearing a very cheap off the shelf because they have to wear it every day. It's like their uniform, right? right? So it's not like a yeah. nicely cut, fitted to their sort of proportions kind of affair. That's true. But the thing is, when you step onto a commuter train in rush hour, you don't. You don't see those, you know, uh, finely boutique crafted seams. Mm. <laughs> it's just like suits. Yes. So the thing is, is that I worked for a, a very large corporation and this was the uniform and it had to be a suit. Mm. It had to be a shirt and it had to be a necktie. Right. And when I was, when I first arrived in Japan it was in 1999 uh, and I arrived in July. Mm-hmm. So that's right in the middle yeah. of of my very first uh, Japanese um, experience with Japanese summer. Japanese summers, for people who've never been there, it's common to reach, to go above 35 degrees Celsius or around 100 Fahrenheit is like common. And as well as that, the humidity 
is often over 100% as well. Mm. That's in uh, Western South Japan, we should point out. Uh, Tokyo right. And, yeah, Tokyo and, and Northeast Japan can be a little bit more mild, but... Uh, not yeah, it's much. Vi- <laughs> not much, no. If it's if it's thirty you know thirty three or thirty four in in Osaka then it will be like thirty one in right, Tokyo right. so it's not, not it's that still much, but, but it's hot and you're wearing a yeah. suit and it's extremely humid in West Japan mm. so you know the, the having everybody who's worn a, a necktie and a shirt will know that having this thing around your throat mm-hmm. it, it it kind of increases your body temperature and the original intention of the necktie. I think it was it was a um, a Prussian army uniform originally mm. that that had uh, this kind of closed neck garment together with a necktie to, to, around the around the throat, mm. and the, the idea was to basically keep these Prussian infantry soldiers warm. Oh, I see. I didn't it, know that. It originally, yeah, it's designed to keep you warm, and it works very well. Mm. You know, if if it's very cold, <laughs> just like wearing a scarf. Having something that rises, you know, some degree up your neck mm. and is a very close fit to your neck actually mm. makes you feel warm. Mm. So that's great. <laughs> now, in every, well, no, no, I shouldn't generalize, but in most other Asian countries where they have very, very humid summers, mm-hmm. the business people don't dress like that. <laughs> <laughs> they have like open necked, short sleeved shirts. Mm. And that's very practical and much more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in Japan, the, um, it did get a little bit better later with the, the cool biz thing, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But when I got there, it was like, no, this is the way that a businessman dresses. Right. You know, you dress like that every day of the year mm-hmm. because a businessman needs to, I'm doing air quotes here, mm-hmm. needs to look professional. Mm-hmm. But of course, the funny thing is, is that you know, your your boss will be telling you that and you can see the beads of sweat dripping down his face <laughs> as he's saying it. And you're there like, you know, looking like you've just stepped out of a shower, like all your hair flat onto your forehead, like the sweat dripping off you as you're standing outside, you know, ready to go into a client meeting mm-hmm. on your client's site. And you, you're completely drenched in sweat. <laughs> your back is like soaked and you, you know, you're thinking, so you've got this little handkerchief towel and you're kind of madly wiping yourself off before you go inside uh, but it's like this is how to look professional like the the wet look is how you look professional <laughs> so the funny thing is is that like you know you would think that in yes in any other country somebody would say to their boss i really don't feel comfortable wearing this clothing because i'm far too hot and the boss would say actually you know what i'm really hot too let's change the way we dress i mean <laughs> It's you know it's a practical problem and it's very uncomfortable and it's hard to do business comfortably when you are you know trying to see through these veils of sweat that's coming through your eyebrows basically. <laughs> However, in Japan, you know you, things it doesn't change so easily like that. It needs to be there needs to be a justification for the decision that you don't have to take responsibility for. Mm. So that means that, for example, if we suddenly decided in our company that we're not going to wear neckties, mm-hmm. we're not going to wear our blazers, we're going to wear short sleeve shirts unbuttoned at the neck, mm-hmm. uh, like you know most other uh, developed uh, Asian business uh, business people would, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to dress that way. The thing is that if you if you were the boss that decided that, 
and somehow or other somebody got offended by the fact that you looked marginally more dry instead of drenched in sweat <laughs> and com- and somehow complained mm-hmm. like what are you thinking this isn't professional to dress like this mm-hmm. you know this is ridiculous how 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 rude which i think is quite likely <laughs> yeah yes so <laughs> Then, then you would need to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. That well, this was my decision, and I deeply apologise for offending you with our slightly more comfortable attire for our country's climate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the idea of cool biz was actually something that was introduced by the government. Mm-hmm. So now, it, you know, there, there is no sort of kind of frowning upon the idea of dressing less in in a humid summer right. because the government said so. Right. Right. And. You were going to, it's funny, I remember that when it first came in, it was in the, I think it was the sort of late 90s is when I think it was introduced. And then mm-hmm. then it, it kind of gradually gained popularity through the 2000s when I was first there. Mm. Uh, and you would uh, not for, actually not ever in the company that I worked at because they still don't, uh, I actually know, sorry. Yeah, anyway, it's not important, but they, they do, I think, now allow the the staff not to wear neckties but i think you still have to wear your blazer right anyway you would go in to visit companies and there would be you know generally in a in a japanese corporation of medium size mm-hmm. you would have a reception that isn't staffed by a person but it would actually just be a telephone mm-hmm. on a table mm-hmm. with a little plaque there saying you know for like sales department mm-hmm. this extension number for you know um you know, administration department, this extension number. Mm-hmm. So you go there and you dial the number and then that representative will come out to meet you. Mm-hmm. So in these companies, there would be that plaque with the extension numbers on it. And then next to it, there would be this little plaque that says, uh, we ask for your understanding and cooperation as we are a cool biz company. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a kind of a little forewarning. It's a right. disclaimer yeah. that if you are offended by the fact that our staff look comfortable and and are not drenched in in uh, in in fungus and and mushrooms and moss and blue cheese, mm. <laughs> then this is the reason. It's not our fault. It's actually the government's cool biz thing, and we're going along with that because it's the government. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's like many sort of things in Japan that work like this. It's actually quite neat. Like, mm. I I know you're sort of making fun of it a little bit, but they will often find a way to work around these sometimes quite strange constraints that mm. that they're working in. And it seems funny and roundabout, but it very often works. Like there's, there's mm. you know, it, it is nice. And it means that the person coming... They can see, okay, now I'm prepared. I know that it's going to be, I know that I'm not going to judge this company as being slovenly or not dressing properly because Mm. they are following this system that is currently being encouraged and they've had the forewarning and everyone's kind of on the same page before anyone's even met. (laughs) You know, it, it, it works quite well, I think. See, I, I yes, Denny. I, I appreciate your uh, your philosophical outlook on, and I do agree with you. And I know exactly what you're getting at. That it's it's kind of quaint, and it is it is. I mean that that removal of responsibility to a higher level where nobody on this level has to worry about it. Um, I see what you're getting at. It's However, it's not so much just a removal of responsibility. It's also because you're always considering the the out group, the people who are not within your group that 
sort of understand the situation. So your company, you're, you know, you've all decided, okay, it's hot. We're going to dress a bit more casually, but nobody else knows that. And if you're the only ones doing it, then of course you're going to look like the kind of lazy, not professional group. So you've got to be thinking about, okay, well, okay, it's not just what we want when we're in the office, but there's also all the people we're going to meet and we've got to think about what they think. And so you need a way to have that communicated sort of globally without directly telling them, because that would also be awkward to like, again, if you were the only company that was doing this, to phone up your clients beforehand and say, by the way, when we turn up, we don't wear like, we're not going to be <laughs> like, you know, that doesn't really work out either, unless you're like, you know, super famous for being a bit more casual, like the games industry, I think has a bit more of a reputation for being casual like that. So people expect it mm. of them, for example, but it's like, I don't see it. So I, I know what you mean about the avoidance of responsibility. And that is a thing that happens. But that's not really the way that I see this. It's more of a how can this be sort of communicated globally simultaneously so that everyone, mm. you know, no one has to judge each other because everyone's been appraised of this at the same time. Yeah, no, that's a that is a very nice, nice, positive outlook. And I'm um, obviously this this phenomenon can be seen from various angles mm. and the way that you see it uh, is, is yes, very, uh, very positive. And I understand that I see that. Mm. I think for my case, in my case, I'm just a little bit traumatized <laughs> by that conversation that I had with my boss as we were like wiping off the, this thick layer of, of moisture <laughs> off our faces before we going into company. Why do we have to dress like this? Why can't we just dress more yeah. comfortably so that we can feel more comfortable and, you know, conduct business without having to worry about <laughs> not being like wiping the sweat off my glasses? It is easy to be philosophical about these things when you've never suffered from them. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, remembering my boss's response that, you know, well, we can't make that kind of decision. Right. You know, yeah. that's, and, and I think, um, yeah, that that's kind of, it's, it's really bad, like, <laughs> really bad. I mean, if you, the, the the trains and the convenience stores are basically like freezers mm -hmm. and they're, they're freezing cold. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason for that is because everybody has the, the this is wearing this kind of attire. And one of the interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, one of the motivations and the objectives of cool biz, mm -hmm. it was never really stated, as far as I can remember, that cool biz is designed to have us feel more comfortable. Right? No. 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 No, the Nobody main objective. That. No, the main objective of Cool Biz right. was to reduce electricity consumption. Right, right. I remember because I remember it also. I mean, I think it was a thing from the sort of early two thousands onwards. But it it came up again, and it became more of a thing again uh, after the March eleventh uh, disaster. That's right. Um, the tsunami and the Fukushima and all of that. Yeah. And uh, we had what was called Setsuden when we were trying to cut electricity in the trains. Uh, which usually are quite strongly air conditioned, as you say, uh, would not be. They would have they would turn off the air conditioning in the trains for certain times of day. Right, and uh, that was that was when this cool biz phrase really flared up again during the time that I was there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it was it was very much because it's you know, and again, that's like a how do how do we do this thing that we all want to do? Mm, right, right. <laughs> but have a reason that we can feel good about that it's not just you know us making our own lives easier but it's mm. us working hard 
for the sake of you know the environment or whatever yeah i mean at the end of at the end of all of this really what it is is i mean i may sound a little cynical and jaded about it but of course having cuz i i did live in japan for 16 years and so i do have a you know i i guess uh, i can be a little bit arrogant in saying that i do have somewhat of an understand deeper understanding of the motivations behind all of this and the basically the the, the way that i learned to see it is that for for better and for and for worse japan is a, is a strikingly homogenous place and that works in all ways you know basically like you said that it's not just about one department in in a company deciding that we want to be more comfortable when we visit our clients mm-hmm. therefore we will dress down you know that sort of practical thinking with individualism in mind isn't isn't really um uh, isn't really an option. It's more like, well, we all have to shift as a group. And so the group being Japanese business people, it it means that if we're all suffering because we're all wearing winter clothes in the middle of a humid Asian summer, then we should all suffer together. So if I'm hot and I'm extremely sweaty, then why should I have the the, the privilege of kind of lowering my suffering in this situation if you can't also. Right. Maybe that works better the other way around. If you if you why should you have the privilege of lowering your suffering when I can't? I think it's more the other way around. I think it's why should I have the privilege of doing it when you're not. Yeah, you're probably right, because Japanese people are very, very wonderfully, lovably considerate in that right. in that sense. Right. But anyway, yeah, the the so therefore, as you said, it's hard to make a decision as a, for example, a single group or a single mm-hmm. a single company in this sea of Japanese companies who are trying to show that they're doing things the same as everybody else in a positive way, and also in a kind of a needlessly was it self self uh, not masochistic, but you know, yes, the opposite of selfless, selfish, selfless. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the the idea of having a government deciding, okay. So this isn't working, people. <laughs> we're we're hot too. So let's all make this choice to be cooler together. And tell you what, we'll give you this kind of title that you can use to put in the front of your company, so that everybody knows. Okay, this is what it's called. It has a name now. It's called Kurbiz, biz mm. and uh, you know we we can all do this together and be slightly more comfortable. <laughs> it it's yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, probably your outlook is is. Uh, more accurate um, than mine was the idea that you know we can't make this decision ourselves. Therefore, you know if we have a, a larger mm. power uh, make the decision on our behalf, then it's it's not our fault that we're wearing no neckties. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean I think that the idea basically is that the homogeneity works in both ways. It works in positive ways, and it also works in ways that just sort of produce needless needless suffering and, and difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of kind of Kind of the, the fortitude and gamandoku, you know, you know mm. the the idea of being able to put up with this kind of um, hardship, but doing it together. Mm-hmm. It, that there is meaning in that, and there is sort of um, uh, is kind of like a um, an acknowledgement to other people's hardship that you are going through hardship yourself. Yeah, I think it's 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 hard to justify doing things to make people more comfortable or more relaxed or to make people's lives easier because at least to make your own lives easier because like working hard not for the sake of some goal but just 
for its own sake mm. is viewed so positively and is such an important sort of thing mm. that what we tend to say here is like work smart, not hard. Like that idea of trying to work, right. like be clever about the way you're going to do things so you can put the, you can get the maximum benefit out of the minimal amount of actual effort right. is not really sort of the way it's it doesn't naturally fit into the way that everyone's sort of mindset or framework tends to work over there which is not to say that like everybody's needlessly wasteful all the time like people do want to find Mm. efficiencies and find ways that they can work better and make better products faster and and Mm. you know for less money like everyone wants to find that right but right i think they there's a different balance of optimizing towards making better products for in the case that you are making products, making better products, I think is, is often prioritized over making cheaper products, for example, Mm. which is a different balance to a lot of places and sometimes to here, but also making better and cheaper products faster and doing your job better and being more efficient at doing the thing. So you can make more things better. Mm. Right. Is all prioritized over doing the same thing but having a nicer life while you're doing it. Mm, right, right. But by and large. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And um, you know, it's uh, the the Japanese ideal of uh focusing on a single thing for your life for you sort of an extreme refinement of a single thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that's also more more appreciated and more noble in a way mm. uh, than uh, sort of flexibility or the, the kind of the ability to improvise or the ability to sort of do many things at a at a reasonable degree of of um, ability. Right. It, it's more kind of noble to to be doing one thing at an extremely high level of ability, uh, and so when it comes to um, the sort of dedication to a single ideal that the process becomes far more important than the result right the result is kind of secondary to the the pathway that you take to get there so mm. yeah it's all it's all uh, yeah. very yeah. fascinating and part of the tapestry of japanese society oh, that's interesting have you been watching the uh, tiger drama this year no i uh, actually watch very little of anything except youtube oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Silmarillion and YouTube. Sorted. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Audio books on YouTube of the Silmarillion. <laughs> the the Tiger drama is a series that is on NHK every year. NHK is the like the equivalent of the BBC in Japan, and every year they put on an historical drama uh, called the Tiger. Not as in the animal, but it's a person's name, Tiger uh, drama, which follows the life of some historical figure Hmm. and they're usually produced to a very high quality and the production values of a very high much higher than the majority of of japanese tv programs Hmm. but this year's has been quite interesting because it's a lot closer to the modern era than most of them like the, Hmm. the vast majority of tiger dramas tend to be earlier like 16th 17th 18th century is quite common also uh, coming up to the meiji restoration is also very common but it tends to be like samurai and before the country was open to foreign trade and so forth Mm. but this one 
is actually following two stories semi-simultaneously. Uh, and they're both related to the Olympics. Mm. So the, the first story is about the first time that Japan entered the Olympics. Do you know when that was? Uh, no. Well, neither do I, but it was 1905 <laughs> to 1910-ish. It was right. around 1910. And do you know where it was? Uh, I guess uh, either Nagano or Tokyo? No, no, this is the time they first went to the Olympics, not the first time they hosted. Oh, okay. Oh, right, right. Uh, Mexico? No. <laughs> <laughs> interesting guess no it was stockholm ah the, well, the first go. time japan ever entered the olympics was the stockholm olympics in uh in about 1910 ish i think right and they only entered two people there was one guy who was for some of the sprints i think he did a few of the like 100 meter 200 meter and maybe 300 meter as well and there was a guy they entered for the marathon hmm so, th so this uh, this tiger drama follows that story, and it also follows the first time Japan hosted the Olympics, which was in the '60s and was in Tokyo. Right, right, right. Uh, and obviously, they're about to host the Olympics again next year in Tokyo. So, this is probably the reason uh, why they've chosen this topic. Mm. But so far, the '60s era part of the story has hardly come up. It's mostly uh, been following this this early period when when they first entered the olympics uh, occasionally it switches back and forth it's like the people who are planning the tokyo olympics are looking back at the videos of mm. of this earlier time mm. uh, but it's quite interesting because this is not that long after japan opened the gates and and allowed people into the country right I can't remember exactly when the Meiji Restoration started, but it's the late 19th century. Mm. And this is the early 20th century. So maybe 20 or 30 years after all that has happened. Right. And much of Japan is still very much the traditional sort of almost feudal society that it was before then. Mm. But then the right. big, like Tokyo and the big cities are much more developed and are sort of starting to industrialize at, at quite a rate. Right. Uh, and this guy, the main guy they've been following, for this portion at least, I think his name is Kamakura-san. Mm -hmm. And he was from Kyushu. So he's from like the countryside mm. of Kyushu. But because when he was growing up in Kyushu, uh, he was always smaller than his brothers. He was like the youngest kid and he was uh, quite ill when he was growing up and stuff. And his father was also quite ill. And so he would always have to run to catch up with his brothers, apparently. And he developed this technique for running mm. along. And he'd have to run for miles to get to school and stuff like that because he lived out in the sticks. Mm. And so he, you know, from like five years old, he was just running every day to get anywhere. And, uh, and then uh, years later, he goes to Tokyo. Uh, he gets denied. Uh, he wants to join the, the Navy, but he gets denied because of his health. He doesn't pass the medical check. So he goes to university in Tokyo to study instead. And while that's all happening, this other guy called Kato-san, who is the inventor of judo, mm. <laughs> uh, he's quite a famous historical character himself. Right. Uh, he meets the ambassador for France, who tells him about the Olympics and about this you know, competition that is put on every four years between all the countries in the world. 
And the big thing he's saying is, is it's world peace through sport. Like that's what he's trying to encourage. All the countries are going to come together and compete through sport mm. rather than through war. <laughs> and it's a, it's a time for all these countries that don't understand each other very well necessarily to come together and just enjoy this thing together. Right. That's, I mean, that's right. been the dream of the Olympics since in the right. entire modern era of the Olympics. Mm. So he introduces him to this idea and this Kato-san gets very sort of enamored with this notion and says that he wants to enter, he wants Japan to enter some people. He thinks it's important. You know, Japan is trying to show itself to be a, a proper developed country at this point, right? It's uh, it doesn't want to find itself being colonized like so many other Asian countries were. Right. Um, and so after they sort of opened the gate, they did, they put a lot of effort to try and establish themselves as as on a similar footing to the the big Western countries that were kind of ruling the world at the time. Mm. And so you know he was trying to push for this is another way to do that. Japan should enter people into the Olympics. And it's quite interesting because he got so much pushback from government because Japan didn't even have the notion of sport at the time. Like sport mm. was not a thing. People did physical training, but it was right. very military, right? They'd learn fighting. <laughs> mm. Even what Kato-san had been doing is judo, right? It's a form of martial art. And they learned that and sword fighting and archery and all these sorts of skills. Uh, and they didn't compete just for the sake of of having fun or for achieving world peace or whatever. <laughs> uh, they were they were practicing so that they would win the next time there was a war. <laughs> That's right. why they were doing it. <laughs> right. uh, and so this notion of we're going to fork out like thousands of dollars worth, whatever the equivalent at the time, a couple of hundred. send people. <laughs> to Stockholm on the other side of the world, right? like to run in a circle just to see who can <laughs> run faster than the other people. Like right. it, that's a complete waste of time and money. Mm. And everyone knows that Japanese people are short, <laughs> much shorter than our Nordic brethren. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're obviously going to lose in this race when they've got such right. long legs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so there was this interesting sort of pushback and, and Katosan had to push quite hard to be allowed to do it at all. And uh, he ended up sort of funding a lot of it himself. He got, by the sounds of things, basically no money from the government to do all this. So mm. he had he sort of drove himself to bankruptcy trying to do it and still couldn't really afford it so he at least in the drama i don't know how much this is true to life he actually persuaded the competitors one of whom came from a noble family and had loads of money but the other one is this you know guy from the countryside mm. he persuaded them to pay for their own trip i see which is like this outrageous amount of money that they had to sort of <laughs> bet the farm on literally right um and and so they go off to sweden together and Anybody who's not up to date with this week's there and is watching it, there will be spoilers. So feel free to use the chapter feature to skip to the next thing. But uh, they, they in where we're up to in the show, which runs all year, so there's a lot left to go. The point we're up right. to, uh, he's just run the marathon. Okay. And 
Is it, is it actually sh- shot in Sweden? I think it is, yeah. They actually went on wow. site in Sweden. And you should, it'd be interesting for you to watch because you might recognize, I mean, obviously it's Sweden in the early 20th century. So right. like, I don't know how much of it is, but they go to the actual stadium. Right. They, the Olympic stadium that is still there in Stockholm. Mm. It's still standing. Have you visited there? Are you aware of it? No. No, I wasn't even aware yeah. of it, actually. <laughs> so it looks like quite a nice building. It'd be worth taking a trip out there because it's the original sort of brick building that they that is the stadium that they built for this Olympics. Okay. And I think you can go visit and, you know, it'd be quite interesting to see. I don't know if they still use it for sporting events or for gigs and things now or what it's used for, but I'm sure you can go and visit it. From a from a production point of view, that's very impressive that the, that NHK would uh, would, yeah, not only film on location but of course on location in a period location right uh, right so they must have had a they must have had a lot of um you know assistance from uh i, I guess like svt or one of the the big uh, the main swedish japan uh, swedish right um, yeah. national channel here or something to do that so no, that's great i think they have in the credits they've got like uh you know thanks to so and so different organizations in sweden who okay. really helped yeah. i think like the swedish sort of tourist office and cultural organizations and stuff like that are also you know quite involved because they want to this is also pushing i mean it's a great advert for sweden right there's going to probably yeah. be a lot of japanese tourists now coming to stockholm to see the site mm. of this whole show so so i have um i have two questions about the production if i can ask mm. uh, not so much about the story but the actual production number 1 is uh, how's the quality of the Western actors? Mm. And number two is what do they do? I'm curious about how they score it musically. Mm. Okay, well, two very interesting questions. I know what you're getting at with the Western actors because you quite often get um, English-speaking actors in Japan that are that have this very strange way of speaking. <laughs> It's kind of like dubbed anime, like dubbed anime. <laughs> but but they're actually talking. It's it's really weird. And I, I've been trying to figure it out because sometimes they are native speakers of English. They're like Americans or English people. Right. And I've seen them like not on Japanese TV being interviewed for other things. Right. And they talk like normal people. Right. So I think part of what happens there is that the producers of the shows want the people watching who are mostly going to be Japanese and most Japanese people have a bit of a complex about their English. Like mm. everyone learns it in school. A lot of people feel like they didn't do very well at it. Mm. And so a lot of people, there's a lot of people who want to learn it, who are going to like conversation classes and tr- trying to improve it. But those same people often feel very bad about their own English. Mm. And I sometimes wonder whether the producers of the show want those people even though there's subtitles and everything, they want them to feel like they're following along and that they are understanding the English as spoken. Mm. And so I think they actually direct the English speakers to speak in this slow, somewhat strangely accented way mm. to make it easier to understand for the Japanese people watching. Mm, I, I wonder, I mean, that's an interesting hypothesis, but I think that the if there are subtitles to rely on, could it could it be actually a situation where the director doesn't really know that this line has been delivered in a in a kind of an awkward uh, kind of clunky fashion which often tends that's to... part of it as well but to me the, the what i see i'm not describing the tiger drama at the moment i'm talking about japanese dramas in general with yeah. foreign actors in them uh, because i think that's what you were getting at yeah that's right it doesn't look to me like 
normal bad acting. <laughs> like I've seen people act badly before. It doesn't look like that. It looks on purpose. It looks like trying to do this other thing that is separate. Right. And I imagine they get quite frustrated because, you know, some of them probably are quite good actors and some of them might feel like they want to put more into their character, but they're getting directed right. to sort of speak in this. This is what I imagine. I don't know if it's true, but I think that they are directed to to. And it's more of a priority that they speak in this kind of weird way that is going to be easier for people to understand mm. than it is necessarily that they they act the character accurately in general. So that's that's Japanese dramas in general, um, and it varies a lot. In this drama, the main foreign language act actor actress who has featured so far is I've forgotten her name. I'll put a link in the show notes. She is quite big in japan now because she was in the asadora the morning drama a couple of years ago mm. uh, where she played the scottish wife of the guy who founded the nikka whiskey distillery okay and we watched that as well it was it was huge at the time she's american but she i thought she put a decent effort into the i think she she made a good stab at the scottish accent in this morning drama uh, that she was in a few years ago. Our Scottish friends, uh, including Chris, who was on the show a few weeks ago, did not seem so impressed. Uh, but <laughs> right. I thought it was pretty good. Anyway, she famously came here. She was hired from America. She moved to Japan. She didn't come here. I'm in America. She she left here. <laughs> um, she She went to Japan to take this job. She didn't really speak any Japanese when she got there, and she had to speak quite a lot of Japanese on the show mm. and so she learnt it on set essentially mm. and she picked it up very quickly and so this you know was very popular everyone in japan is always impressed by foreigners who who speak japanese well and i even saw some articles by some uh non-japanese people you know foreigners who were living in japan who were complaining <laughs> that because she picked up japanese so quickly now, the expectations for everyone else had sort of been raised. Mm. And so suddenly all the Japanese people around them were saying, well, how come you speak so Japanese so badly, you know, has such bad Japanese when you've been here for two years and she's only been here six months and she's, she's speaking it so well. So that was a little bit sort of right. <laughs> semi-controversial. But um, anyway, uh, so she she was there for that show. Uh, it, it was... Another thing that Asadora is another institution like the Tiger drama. Yeah. And so she was there th throughout sort of the length of that show. And she did very well and became very famous. Then she came back to Japan for a bit. Uh, to, sorry, she came back to the US for a bit. Um, and I don't know if she did some work while she was over here. But now she's gone back to Japan to, to go in this Tiger drama. Uh, she plays mm. the wife of uh, one of the characters who is like the the director he's he's can't be very actively sporty himself because he's got tb or something like that he's got tuberculosis or something mm. so he's not very active himself but he's really into sport and so he's been watching all these people and he's written like a book on mm. like good technique and stuff and so he he is like the trainer and the director for these people who are going to compete in the olympics mm. uh, and he's also he lived in america for a few years and studied all this over there and married this woman who comes back so that's why so she is another sort of 
foreign character who's got married to a Japanese person and come back with him and speaks pretty good Japanese. But she seems to randomly switch between Japanese and English mm. in this show. Um, and her, her acting is pretty good. She's already a kind of known quantity in Japan. Mm. She's also now a talent dot. So she's featuring on all these sort of daytime television shows, like right. <laughs> doing random things, going up and meeting random strangers on the street and stuff. Right. So there's her. The other characters tend to be more minor, the other foreign characters. So during this period, while they've been in Stockholm, which is just coming to an end now, so we'll probably, that'll be the end of that. Right. Uh, but there are a couple of characters, uh, well, there were quite a few uh, local people who were obviously hired who would speak Swedish. Right. Uh, and I can't make any judgment of their acting in Swedish. Right. They seemed legit to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, some of the characters speak English. Uh, like the more main characters, even if they are spe- Swedish or they're supposed to be Swedish, are speaking English, um, maybe partly out of practicality because the people watching are more interested in hearing English for the same reasons that I said before, that they might understand some of it, even though there's subtitles. Right. But also partly because, you know, I think the Japanese people going would have spoken no Swedish and at least would have had a little bit of English. Mm. And there would not be many Japanese-speaking guides available in Sweden. So probably they did actually use English-speaking guides Mm. for the sake of, you know, communication. So, yes, there's a couple of characters like that. And actually not too bad. Yeah, the acting has been generally, I think, pretty good. Not like what you sometimes Mm. see in random dramas. Because, you know, the production values of the Tiger dramas are so much higher than than most dramas. Right. Well, they certainly certainly seem to have the budget and the... I guess the the, the the pipeline for it right. if they're managing to kind of get location shoots in period right. period Stockholm exactly. in, the, in you know the early twentieth century. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's that. Now the music. Yeah. I can't say that much specifically about like I'm not sure exactly what you want to know, but the music in general for the Tiger dramas is excellent. It's usually scored. You know, it's, it's scored specifically for that drama. And usually as the the uh, thing goes on, there's a few times during the year where the title sequence will change and the music will change. Mm. The music will sort of progress as the series goes on. And they tend to release about three or four CDs by the end of it of soundtrack CDs that you can buy just to listen to the music. See, ah, uh, CDs. I remember those. <laughs> good, old J- good old Japan. They can fax us you the CD. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it orchestral? Uh, so... Again, most Tiger drama music is very orchestral. Okay. This one is a little bit... It's still mostly orchestral, but it's a little bit more modern feeling. I see. And sometimes has some some more... I don't know. Poppy is not the right word, but uh, some less grand elements because it's a more modern mm. setting. The reason that I ask, of course, is that, yeah, like the, the early uh, 20th century, there's it's kind of my favorite period for classical music ah. um, there's, there's a lot of great stuff happening at that stage mm. uh, but also when when you zip forward to the 60s it's going to be interesting to see how they treat that music yes as well. that will be interesting I, yeah unfortunately uh, i can't think of the olympics or sports like kind of antiquated sports mm. and not think of two particular themes of music and the styles that they uh, that that follow that, that uh, kind of surround them mm. You know, one of course is uh, chariots of fire. Of course, <laughs> uh, and the the other one is uh, I don't know. Maybe you might not know this one, but it's a there's a song called um, it's by Emerson Lake and Palmer. It's called Fanfare for the Common Man, mm. 
and it's uh, it it was always always it's an instrumental piece and it was always featured on the uh, uh, on Australian sports television mm. in the eighties. I'll have to send you a clip. You, you'll recognize it when you hear it. Yeah, probably. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, that's when they get to the '60s. That's going to be interesting to see how they, uh, how the, the the uh, the music instrumentation changes because yeah, again, like the earlier 20th century, the 1960s, of course, has uh, a whole range of uh, everything is happening in the '60s when it comes to music. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it will be really interesting to see. In general, they do well uh, at avoiding sort of cheesy things yeah. in the Tiger dramas. So I don't expect it to be uh, too cheesy. And I expect they will incorporate more sort of pop elements. And that will be interesting to right, see. So no, uh, no maestro fuzz tones. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. The, the framing of the show is also very interesting uh, because the way that it's told is, and the clips that you see from the 60s for the most part now, it's actually a beat Takeshi oh, yeah. is, is one of the characters. He's playing one of the characters from the 60s. Right. And he's playing a Nakugo storyteller. Nakugo is this traditional uh, comedic form of storytelling that has existed in Japan for hundreds of years. I think we may have talked about it in an earlier episode. Mm. And interestingly, he is telling the story of what happened in this earlier time when Japan first competed in the Olympics. And as that was happening, he himself, his character, was first learning rakugo mm. and was uh coming into that world so he's like this really sort of rough character from like the red light district of tokyo he spends all his time drinking and and messing around uh, but he ends up carrying on a jinrikisha which is what is that it's like a rickshaw mm. where you're you're carrying people around on, on like a carriage but not horse drawn it's human drawn he does that and he carries this rakugo storyteller around who takes him on as his apprentice. And uh, so you get this interesting back and forth between him telling this story in the 60s, which feels kind of like modern times, mm. and then his earlier life as a kind of layabout in the early 20th century in what feels like like that area of Tokyo is a little bit less developed and it really feels like old Tokyo. It feels like you're really on the the border between the kind of earlier Edo period, which obviously ended way, way before this is set, but it's still got some of that feeling to it mm. uh, and and the Meiji period. Um, so it's a really interesting sort of uh, framing in the way they move back and forth between these different eras. Is um, there any way for our listeners to actually view this online? Uh, no. Well, there's there might be some clips on YouTube to see clips. If you want to actually view it, you have to NHK has a an online streaming service where you can pay a certain amount every month and you can see anything broadcast in the last I think it's two weeks. Hmm. But they don't technically allow you to access that from outside of Japan. No, that's typical. Um <laughs> so you need that's a shame. You need a VPN essentially and you right. need uh, this service so both of which cost money so you can watch it uh but it's a bit of a gray area legally and you have to pay i think it's about nine dollars a month for the uh for the nhk service and then a vpn service mm. will probably cost you about that again so it's not too expensive i mean if you're learning japanese you want to watch japanese tv for around twenty dollars a month you can watch anything nhk has put out in the last two weeks which is it's pretty good mm. so it's a good deal but 
it's not free. Mm, that's a shame because, uh, yeah, NHK is. Um, I remember when I was living in Japan, consistently, you know, that they have excellent, excellent programs. Mm. I mean, you know, like most uh, most countries and their national channels have very, very good programming, mm. but uh, NHK is, is uh, particularly good. And NHK a- particularly good. Their educational programs as well. They've been doing a series recently about. Uh, famous books in literature and philosophy. Mm. Uh, they were doing Marcus Aurelius's Meditations this week. And just really good, like quite, you know, not too deep analysis, but a good introduction to a wide range of things. So how is it that you were watching NHK? Um, maybe we shouldn't go into too much detail. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> But I think though in some countries, uh, probably the states as well, you can actually um, get NHK from a cable TV connection. Right? NHK have an English language news channel. Oh, okay. I think they've got a Japanese language news channel that they have on cable mm. here. There's also a cable TV channel that you can add to your cable package called Japan TV, mm. which I think has some NHK programs, but also has. Uh, some other programs i don't know exactly what they've got they've they've made deals and managed to get japanese tv but you can't just purchase that on its own you have to add it to a cable package and a cable package typically costs like 70 dollars or something Mm. and it's 20 dollars for japan tv so that's 90 dollars when we don't even want to watch cable like we don't have cable right so it just doesn't make sense Mm. Oh, well, hopefully you might be able to find um, some clips here or there on YouTube that people have put up or something. Yeah, yeah, I'll see to, what I can uh, find. At the very least, can... like there should be some adverts or something. Like it is interesting to see and to get a, a feel for it. Yeah, even if you don't understand Japanese, yeah, sure, it's interesting to see just the difference in like the Japan in the early twentieth century versus Japan in the sixties, right? Versus Japan now, right? These are almost equally spaced apart. These eras, right, right, and they are so interestingly different from each other. <laughs>